you know, it's neat. Every, every week we gather, we know that there's so many other churches that are also gathering and praising the name of Christ. And as Paul read the Apostles' Creed and it says the Holy Catholic Church, I know everyone's always wondering, what does that Catholic mean? And, but it it's really stands for that universal church that we know that right now we are standing with brothers and sisters all over the world. And we celebrate the truth that not only Jesus died, but he rose again. And so that is a good reminder this morning. Today is Easter. It is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he conquered the grave and he conquered death. Isn't that good? I love how Paul says he's, um, he is risen, and then you all say, like, I'd love to know who started that. Um, uh, Ozon has a whole Indeed theology, and so he's been sharing that with us, and we've been laughing about that, but but it's what unites us, the death and resurrection. We can have so many differences, but the death and resurrection unites us. And that's why we are here this morning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's because Jesus rose that we know also we who believe in him will rise from the dead. Isn't that good news? He rose, therefore we know if we believe in him, we will rise with him for all of eternity. Uh, God's plan has always been that he would have a people who would live with him, who would worship him and enjoy him for all time. The problem is, and, and we see it from the very beginning in Genesis 3, that we are sinful. Rather than worshiping God, rather than loving God, we want to worship other things. We desire things other than God. Rather than give God his glory, we want the glory. And so the Bible says the punishment of that is death. And the Bible then says, but that's why Jesus came. He came, he was born at Christmas, he lived for roughly 30 or so years, where eventually he would die on Good Friday, and we know it's Good Friday, because we know what he did, why he did it, that he died on the cross for our sins, that we could be forgiven, and we know that it's true, because on Sunday, he rises, the empty tomb testifies. It declares not only that Jesus is who he was, who he said he is, but that death and sin and Satan have been conquered. Death has been overcome. Isn't that good news? Um, so I want to talk about death. Then. I feel like that's a good thing to do on Easter. We've all come to talk about death. Uh, but let me just ask you, do you ever think about death much? Do you wonder what happens when you die? I mean, just think about that. If there's a life that exists after death, beyond the grave, then wouldn't it be good to know about that? I mean, would there be anything more important than to know about that? If this life really is temporary, a short 50, 60, 70 years at most, and that life is forever, wouldn't it be good to know what does that look like? How do we make sure we have eternal life I think especially in our, our westernized culture, we do a really good uh, job of dismissing and or ignoring death. I mean, if you think about it, I was thinking about just things that we think about a lot. We can become focused on family, work, paychecks, vehicles, vehicles that break down. Thinking of specific people this morning even. Um, they walked here. Uh, houses, vacations, leaky faucets, renovations, hobbies, sports, soccer, birthday parties. Birthday parties for our kids. And then the worst, birthday parties for our kids' friends. Like those are the ones I can never keep straight. So that by the time we get to the end of the day, we have no room left in our heads to think about death. We're worn out. 
But in our hearts, do we not know that there's more to life than just what we see? I just want you to think about that. In the depths of our soul, do we not know that there's more than just what we see in creation? The Bible regularly speaks about what's called general revelation. General revelation is the fact that when we look at creation, when we look at like the changing of the color of the leaves, or when you hear a baby's laugh, or when you look and you study and, and see the speed of like the, the fluttering of a hummingbird's wings, or when you look at the complexity of the human eye, or you consider gravity or the rotation of the earth, that as we look at these things, that our mind would go beyond them and say, somebody created this. There had to be a creator. There had to be one who made all these things. And yet while the Bible speaks about general revelation, it doesn't leave it for general revelation to explain who he is and how we have eternal life. That's why he sent his son Jesus. So while all of creation points to God, he specifically sends his son Jesus that he would come so that we could be saved and have everlasting life. So we have the teachings of Jesus in his word. We see the miracles of Jesus. We see that he dies, but we also see that he rose again from the grave. And we see that when he rose, he appeared to more than 500 people testifying that he truly did rise. So when we come together, Easter declares Jesus is who he said he is. Easter declares that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the one who forgives us of our sins. And Jesus is the means in which we receive eternal life. That's what Easter is declaring. Everything that Jesus said is true. Everything that we see in his word, all 66 books, is true. So have you considered what is eternal life with God? How would you define that? You're just thinking about it. What would that definition be? One could say eternal life is everlasting joy in the presence of an infinitely glorious God. There's no sin, no pain, no hurt, no suffering, just unending maximum joy worshiping God. It makes Disneyland, Disney World, Hawaii, and every destination place look like a mud hole. And so what we're going to do today, in God's word, we're going to see that there's only one way to receive eternal life. There are not many paths, many doors, many roads. There's one road, one path, one way, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is, Jesus is going to tell us, come, follow me. That's his message. If you want eternal life, follow me. And so the, what we're going to do is we're going to be in Matthew 19. So if you have your Bibles there, it can be Matthew 19. And we're going to look at a very, very um, maybe well-known conversation between Jesus and a man that comes to him and talks to him about eternal life. And so one thing we do here uh, when we read God's word is we stand at the reading of God's word. So I just want to invite you to stand. We do this just simply as a means of reminding us this is God's word. While God used man to write it, he breathed out the words. He inspired the words to be written. So this message is, and whenever we turn to God's word, it is his message for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Matthew chapter 19. Uh, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to go from verse 16 all the way to verse 30. It starts out, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? 
And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus, looking at them, said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And we just, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a word that is centered around the gospel. Specifically teaching us about eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we hear the message that eternal life is only possible by your grace. By your grace in Jesus Christ. I pray we know that today. I pray we see that truth today. I pray we glory in that truth today. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's here who does not yet know you and is wrestling with who you are, with what Christianity is, I pray that you would give wisdom and grace today, that their eyes would see the beauty and the treasure of your son Jesus, and that there is no other means to be forgiven and have everlasting life than you. And I pray for us who, who do know you, who have seen that grace, who have experienced it and know that joy. I pray that if there is anything in our lives that tries to, to create a snare, that tries to lead us away, that tries to distract us from the glory of your son, that you would make that known to us today, that we'd be able to repent of that. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your grace. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to do so in kind of two sections. Section number one, we're going to look at the three questions that the man asked Jesus. And then section number two, we're going to look at the three instructions Jesus gives us regarding eternal life. So in order to start, we'll start uh, with the first question that he asked. Uh, verse 16, he comes up to him and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man comes to Jesus looking for an answer. He's probably heard Jesus teach. He's probably been impressed with his teaching, has probably seen miracles or heard some of the miracles. And so he comes to him, and he, he knows that Jesus can help him on his quest. And so two things I want you to see about this first interaction. Number one, the man is performance-focused. He wants to see what he must do. He's focused on his abilities and his work. If eternal life is out there, if it's possible, He's going to make sure that he gets it. And the second thing, um, Jesus 
directs this man then to the righteous requirements of the law. He says, okay, if you're going to be performance focused, then let's look at the law and what must be done. And so I want you uh, to notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? Like he's challenging the guy. Who, who do you think I am? Like, why, why are you coming to me? And then he says, there is only one good. So regardless of the man's view of Jesus, he knows Jesus knows that he knows God is good. So he says, there's only one who is good. So Jesus is in essence saying, if you know God is good, then keep the good God's, keep God's good commandments. Do that. And if you're going to be performance focused, do what God requires, what the good God requires. Now, you got to think about this. Here comes a man. He's wanting to know what he must do. And so Jesus now is going to give him a list of things to do. He's happy about this. This is exactly what he wants to hear. He's on the right path. He knows Jesus is the right person now. He's going to square him away. And so he asks the question, question number two, which ones? That makes sense, right? What do I need to do? Jesus says, well, have you seen the law? Yeah, which ones? So what rules and laws do I need to keep? And I I think he's actually asking, what did I miss? Because at the end of this interaction, we'll see, well, he knew the Ten Commandments, and he thinks he's already done them. But Jesus directs the man to the Ten Commandments. Now, it's strange. He doesn't mention the first four. You know, the ones that say, have no other gods before me. Don't make any other idols. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. He doesn't mention those at all. He goes right to uh, commandments number five, six, seven, eight, and 9. And then he goes to Leviticus 19.18, which is the most quoted verse from the Pentateuch, the verse five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He takes the most quoted verse from the, from the first five books of the Bible, and he gives that to him, which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is really kind of a summary of the law. I mean, there's, there's many questions we could ask Jesus, like, like why'd you go about it this way? Why didn't you give the first four commandments? Why would you leave out commandment number 10, the one that says you shall not covet, which seems to be the man's real issue? Well, what we're going to see is that Jesus uses the law to expose the man's heart. After all, notice how the man responds. Verse 20, he says, all these I have kept. All these have kept. Have you ever thought about that? Ten commandments? Yep, did that, done that. That's his response. You probably have heard the phrase, if you give someone enough rope, what? What will they do? They will? See, like, you guys know this. Um, That's what just happened. Like, don't miss that. That's what just happened. Have you kept the commandments? Yeah. Did that. What else? So there's, there's three things, three things to note here. Three things. Number one, he's totally missed the purpose of the law. He's totally missed the purpose of the law. God never gave the law as a means of you and I obtaining righteousness. Never gave the law as a means of salvation. Salvation is never by works. Rather, the law expresses our need. Rather, the law expresses our sin or shows it exposes our sins and our weaknesses. In fact, you can go through many different passages in the New Testament where Paul or other writers are writing about the law. But this is what Paul says, Romans 7. He says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would, have, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So 
Paul's point, the law reveals sin. Kind of like when you, when you go to the airport, what's the first thing you got to do when, when you enter the airport and you're, you're going to make your way to, to your gate? You got to go through the metal detectors. And the metal detectors are there to not only examine you, uh, but to examine your bags and figure out what doesn't fit, like what's not supposed to be there. And I always liked it in the past when they beeped. I don't think they really beep anymore. But basically in the past when you'd go through, if there's something not right, it would beep. And then they would try to figure out what's not right, what doesn't belong here. That's what the law does. It, in a sense, beeps. When God gave us, gave us his law, so when we read it, we would see that we are sinners. For example, when the law says don't covet, what do you realize that you do? You covet. When the law says honor your mother and father, all of a sudden you realize I really don't honor mom and dad that much. Or to think of it like this way, if I was to place a fresh batch of baked chocolate chip cookies in front of you and you know you smell the cinnamon and the nutmeg and whatever else goes into them, I don't have no clue. Is that not, cinnamon goes into them, right? I don't make chocolate chip cookies, I eat chocolate chip cookies. But you know, whatever goes in, really, no nutmeg? Seems like a good thing to have in there. Well, you see how much I do cooking. Um, but if I said, you know, suppose they were actually made with the right ingredients, and, and then we said, don't touch them, what do you want to do? Now, the law doesn't make you want to eat them. It just exposes the sin in your heart that as soon as you hear, you can't have this, well, that's what I want. Don't covet, well, I, I want to covet Honor your mother and father while I don't always do that. The law exposes our sin. But the problem with the law, it has no ability to fix us. Zero ability to fix us. It just simply beeps. Just beeps whenever there is sin. And that's what it does. It exposes. So this man has missed his sin. Number two, or he's missed the purpose of the law. Number two, he's missed his sin because he's blind to his own sin. He seems to be totally unaware, or at the very least, he thinks his sins are so incredibly minor that they are not worth mentioning at all. This man looks at the Ten Commandments like probably you and I do when we go to Costco and we have a list, and we just check it off. Did that, did that, got that, got that, got that. I get to the end of the list. I know I can leave Costco. Um, that's what he's done. But here's the danger. When you're blind to your sin, you're blind for your need of a Savior you see no sin. See, the law is beautiful because it does expose our sin. And if we have no sin, if we don't think that we're sinners, then we don't need to be saved from anything. And so we need to be really careful at this moment when we're reading this passage because we don't need to think of this guy, this man who comes to Jesus as some extreme example that none of us can relate to. But rather what we need to see is here's a guy who practices morality, tries to be religious, follows the law. So he's probably, especially in this room, a little more similar to us than what we might actually think. And thus, he probably has much to teach us then about God's grace. God's, um, if we, we naturally think in our hearts, apart from God's grace, that we are not sinful. Or if we are, it doesn't matter much. 
I mean, think about it. If, if someone was to ask you or if you were to go ask your neighbor or coworker, are you a good person, what would they say? I'm probably yes. I didn't kill anyone today. I'm probably a pretty good person. Um, if you ask them, will you go to heaven, what will they say? I mean, if they believe in some type of, you know, afterlife, some type of heaven, most likely they'll say yes. And if you say, why, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm really pretty good. I'm a good person. Sin blinds us to our faults and weaknesses. I'm going through um, a Bible study right now with some guys, and we just got done reading Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in those books, there's a guy named Moses. And Moses is used by God to bring God's people out of Egypt and bring them right up to the point of entering in the promised land. But Moses isn't able to go in. And when you read the story of Moses, for the most part, you're looking at him going, He's pretty amazing. He leads God's people. He shepherds God's people. They grumble. They fight. They complain the whole time. And yet he just keeps leading them faithfully, faithfully, faithfully to God like the entire time. But there was one time where God said, listen, the people are thirsty. This is what I'm going to have you to do. I want you to speak to the rock and it's going to bring forth water. Now that happened before, but Jesus told them, or God told him to, to strike the rock with his staff. This time he's supposed to speak. Moses doesn't do what God said, but he strikes the rock, just like he did the last time. One sin, and throughout the first five books of the Bible, we regularly read, Moses can't enter into the promised land. Will not enter. One sin, not entering in. And I just think you and I, we need to realize that one sin, disqualifies us completely and absolutely. Not only are we born sinful, but one, one ill thought, one act of unrighteous anger, one act of impatience, one curse word, you know, one lustful thought disqualified forever. No chance of entering into the eternal life with God. God's word shows that we are sinful. The whole purpose of the law it's to show that we are sinful, and this man has missed it. And so it brings us to the third thing we need to see about him. He's arrogant. And we see that as he asks this next question. What do I still lack? In his eyes, he's done the Ten Commandments. The righteous requirement of God, God's law, was too easy. He's literally saying, what else? I did that. I came to you so you could tell me what else I need to do. Don't take me back to the Ten Commandments. That was easy. Did that yesterday. Give me something harder. We learned something here. And I want you just to think about this. We learned something about the human heart. Your performance will never produce peace in your heart. Like, don't miss it. Your performance will never produce peace. This man works hard. He follows the law. He constantly does good things. He's trying to earn eternal life. He's working and working and working and working. He puts in overtime all the time. He's always loving his family. He's always staying late at work. He's always doing what's required of him and going beyond. And yet his heart is restless. He's like, there has to be more. I know I haven't done it yet. There's more, there's more, there's more. And so I just want to ask you, do you, do you know that restlessness? Do you know what it's like to work and work and work, to have a heart that, ex that craves acceptance and approval, and you do everything you can 
to make sure you're meeting the mark. You're doing what's required. You're going beyond what's required. And yet someone just keeps moving the goal line a little bit further. Have you ever felt that? You have to hear it. We have to hear it. We can't miss this. There is no work that you can perform that will provide peace in your heart. There's no work. And so if you look at Jesus' response, verse 21, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, which means mature, which means complete, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus didn't forget the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Rather, rather he's bringing them right now to face it. See, the point of that command is that we're not to be content in anything but God. And this man is devoted to his possessions, devoted to his life. And what Jesus wants us to know is our worth is not found in having treasures here on earth. Our worth is not found keeping up with the Joneses. And so here, Jesus directs him right back now to the righteous requirements of the law. And we see the man's heart is fully exposed. Jesus tells the man, give everything away that you have worked so hard for and give it to the poor. Give it to those who cannot pay you back cannot give you honor, cannot give you recognition. Give it to them and follow me. And notice something here. What's he looking for? He's looking for eternal life, right? That's his question. I want eternal life. But what does Jesus tell him to do? Follow me. He wants eternal life, but Jesus says, okay, so follow me. What's the connection? Jesus is eternal life. If you want eternal life, it's in Jesus. There is no everlasting life with God apart from Jesus. We know that. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have what? Eternal life. You believe in the son and you have everlasting life. But notice what the man does here. He hears what he must do. This is what he wants. He asked me, give me something harder to do. Jesus said, okay, give it all away. Give everything away that you lust after. Give everything away that you've worked after. Give everything that you believe gives your life meaning and give it away and follow me. And what does he do? He walks away. Verse 22, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The reason is for because he had great possessions. The reason is he loves his stuff. He loves his stuff more than God. He's so close to eternal life. He's so close to eternal life. He heard the words from Jesus himself, and he walks away, thus proving he's not only broken the 10th commandment, but also the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Now, think about this. This man wants eternal life. He's searched for it. He's worked hard for it, but he misses it because he loves the things of earth more than God. So what I want to do now is look at what Jesus has to say about eternal life so we don't miss it also. So I just want you to think, these instructions are now given so we don't walk away like this rich man. They're given so we would have eternal life. He gives them now to us so we would heed them, so we would obey them, so we would hear them. So we could say life and death hang in the balance of these instructions that Jesus gives right now. Number one, eternal life is impossible for man to earn. That's where he goes in verse 23. Jesus, Jesus now explains the situation to his disciples. So his disciples have been watching this encounter the whole time. It's like the dream encounter, right? 
Someone walks up to you, what do I need to be, to be, what do I need to do to be saved? Isn't that what you wish people would walk up to you? We think that makes it so easy to share the gospel, and yet we see that that does no guarantee that they will believe in the gospel. And so these disciples have just watched Jesus fail in evangelism, in a sense, so they could think. So now Jesus is going to say, let me explain to you what's happened here. Verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Here's the point. We can't enter eternal life by our own works and riches. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot obtain it. You cannot achieve eternal life by your works. You can, you can go to church seven days a week. You can give away large amounts of money. You can memorize large portions of the Bible. You can go on mission trips. You can build houses in third world countries. And not one of those moves you one inch closer to eternal life. None of our works, none of our accomplishments, none of our achievements, none of our trophies, not even the participation rewards. None of those. They make it possible to receive eternal life. In fact, what scripture says is that the more we think or the more we have, the harder it is to have eternal life. And you say, well, well, why? Because we think that our riches and works are a means of measuring ourselves. The more we have, the better we are. The more we've done, the more qualified that we are, the more acceptable I am. And, and you know this to be true because we all do this. We all judge people by what they wear, what they drive, and what they live in. Every single day you do this. I do this. In fact, last night I had the opportunity of going with my son to the Sounders game. It's been a while since I drove to Seattle, and it was neat. We're, we're coming in at 5 o'clock, and the sun is beginning to set, and it's hitting the skyline of Seattle, and you see all the high-rises, all the skyscrapers. And it's, it's pretty awesome looking. And so we're talking about the different buildings and things, and, and I'm looking at these, and I'm just... I'm in a sense measurement. It's been a while since I've been up there and just seeing it was really neat the way the light was hitting it. I just sit going, this is, this is beautiful. And there was part of me, and I, I, I felt it in me going, that's what success is. Like the people who live, work at the top of these buildings, they're successful. They work there at the top. They look over all of this all the time. Pretty amazing. That's pretty powerful. I could feel in my own heart the way that we judge and the way we measure things. And I was sitting there going, that is a picture of the world's success right there. To live here, to be up there, and to look down on all of this. And that's what Paul warns us about in 1 Timothy 6, 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich, it's not necessarily that riches in themselves are, are bad. It's not the message of this morning, and that's not the point of the Bible. But he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many a senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destructions. His point is, your love for riches can be a snare. And if that's true, then we really need to be careful here, because we're one of the richest nations there are, and everything we want is on Amazon, and it's only a click away. And it could be in your hands in two days. Like I was talking to someone the other day, I think Amazon makes us buy more things. Because not only can I have it faster, but now I can do free returns all the time. And they know you're going to forget about those free returns. 
So you're going to have it. You go, I missed my window. I guess I just keep it now. Think about it. We have cars. We have houses. We have storage facilities. We have sheds to hold all of our stuff. And we just keep building more. You go north of I-5, north of Costco, and what did they build? Brand new one of storage facilities. You could just go right around the corner, follow Yelm Highway around, another storage facilities. Storage facilities all over. Now, there's sometimes good reasons for them, but they're to hold all the things that we own on this earth. And if we're not careful, those things become a snare, tempting us to trust in them rather than God. But here's the thing that Jesus is saying. It's not only impossible for the rich to be saved, it's impossible for anyone to be saved by their own work. That's what he's getting at. Because look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, it says they're greatly astonished, and they say, who can be saved? If the guy who's done so much, if the guy who's worked harder than all of us, if the one who's better than all of us, and if he can't get it, who? What chance do we have? They realize Jesus isn't just talking about rich people. He's talking about anyone at this moment, which brings us to why they say, who then can be saved? So this takes us to the second truth that now Jesus gives. First one, eternal life is impossible for man to earn. Second truth, eternal life is possible only by God's grace. Look at verse 26. It can't be more clear. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The only reason you can be saved, the only reason I can be saved and have everlasting life with God is by his grace. God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And we are not. And how do we know that? Because the law. The law reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our wickedness. It reveals our shortcomings. It reveals that we get angry. It reveals that we're upset that life doesn't revolve around us. So we stand guilty before God. And just as a murderer has no right to go back into public, so we have no right to enter into the kingdom of God. We're guilty, we're condemned before God. Just like the rich man in the story, we have loved things more than God. You know you've done that. That's, those are the very things that we get angry about, that we get upset about, that life hasn't worked the way we wanted it to. We've all committed the sin of covetousness and idolatry. We deserve wrath. We deserve God's unending, infinite, eternal torment. That's what we deserve. And that's exactly why we come and we gather here and we celebrate God every week because he's given grace. He sent Jesus at Christmas. He lives 30 plus years. On Good Friday, he dies so that we could be forgiven and then he rises, proving he's the son of God, proving he's the one who gives forgiveness to sins, proving that there is grace from God, proving that there is eternal life and we can live with him. We do not need to live separated from him. We do not need to rely upon our works because we can't rely upon those. So Easter, we celebrate the very fact that God has given grace. That's what we're here for. That's what we celebrate. That's why we gather every single week, not because of anything that we do, not because of anything that we achieve, but simply his grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not your own doing. The Bible makes it clear. Nothing you did. Right, God's not sitting here and trying to pick teams right now, saying, which, which people do I want on my team? And he looks at you and he goes, well, what do they have? Ooh, they have a nice house, they have a nice car, they have this, they have that, they have this, they have that. And he goes, well, that would look, make my team look better. 
Like, like think about it. We don't make Team God look good. Like, do you realize that? Like, that's not what happens. He needs no improvement. He's infinitely perfect, infinitely righteous, infinitely holy. He possesses everything already. So when you come with your U-Haul full of stuff, he's like, yeah, I made that. I own that. When you come and you say, look at all the things I did. You mean with the breath and the heartbeat that I gave you? And the strength that I gave you? With the life that I sustain you at every moment of every day? You're still breathing right now. Your lungs are working because God says work. Like everything is by his grace. And so when we come and we're saying, look at all the things I've done, we're making a mockery of him. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so we could be saved from that, saved from these ideas that these riches actually add value to our life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him the righteousness of God, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, he takes our sin. He takes all of our lustful, covetous desires, and he takes those, and he pays the penalty for them. And then he gives us his righteousness. And how do you know you're saved? How do you know that Jesus is the one who really saves us? How do you know Jesus is the grace of God? How do you know that at the cross Jesus really did pay the price for your sins? How do you know that if you believe in him you are adopted? How do you know you have eternal life? How do you know? An empty tomb. He's risen. He didn't stay dead. And the crazy thing is, he appeared to more than 500 people, so you can go back and verify it all you want. The empty tomb testifies. Easter testifies saved by grace. So when you wonder, is he real? Did he really die for my sins? Yes, because he rose three days later. We always come back to the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of times we focus on the cross and we need to focus on the cross. But we have to realize when we think of the cross, we need to think of the resurrection too. Not one without the other. You don't have resurrection without the cross. There's no point to going to the cross if there's not a resurrection. Answer is the empty tomb. And so if salvation is by grace and not by works, how do we come to Jesus? If you don't come with your U-Hauls and your um, our trailers full of stuff, how do we come? Go back in your Bibles, Matthew 19, verse 13. Just go back like a few verses. Jesus tells us exactly how we come to him. It says, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked the people. I mean, they were like, no, don't bring your children, your infants. That's, that's too little. Jesus is worth more than that. No, no, he doesn't have time for this. But Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. How do you have eternal life? How do you come to Jesus? Not in your power, not in your strength, not in your might, not with all of the stuff that you've done. But he says, this is the picture I want you to have. A baby. A baby. One who has needs all the time, totally and absolutely dependent, cannot sustain himself at all, at any time, without us. That's how you come to God, he says. You want eternal life? Come with your arms wide open. Don't you love, I think it was, um, it was, it was Cora the other day, she was in here, and she just does this to Aaron. And Aaron's like, okay, I'll pick you up. 
That's how we come to Jesus. We just come with our arms open. We have nothing else. We just say, this is me. This is me. I have nothing. All I have is sins. All I have is flaws. I don't make Team God look good at all. But I just need your grace. That's how we come to God, like a baby. Not like a rich man. Not in our morals. Not in our power. Not in our strength. But 100% dependent. Completely needy at all times. Whiny at times, too. That's how we come to Jesus. And you say, but what, don't I need those things? I mean, don't I need those things? And so Jesus' last point is, no, you really don't need those things. Last point, infinite, eternal life is infinitely greater than all the treasures of earth. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, so we're talking the new heavens, new earth. We're talking perfection here. We're talking at the very end of it all. Jesus says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So he turns to him. He's going to give us a glimpse into heaven. So just think of like, there's, there's a door here, and on the other side is eternal life. So he's going to push the door open just a little bit. So you get this crack, this glimpse, and we just kind of put our eye up to it. And he says, you leave this, everything that you think is important, your family, your lands, your, your riches, everything that you have here. And in here, 100 times more. And, and don't think of that. So if I give $10, that's 100 times more. Is a thousand? No. Infinitely more. That's the point. Jesus is saying, you believe in me. When, when you come and trust in me in the new heavens and new earth, you will have absolutely everything. You see, what, what's crazy is our God is infinitely glorious. He's not threatened by you at all. And so he's willing, I will share everything with you, is what he's saying. Jesus promises rule and authority to us. He tells the disciples, I will place you on thrones. And this isn't the only time we read of things like this. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, we're told all the saints will judge the world. Revelation 3, 21, every believer who believes in Jesus will sit on the throne with Jesus forever. It's a man indeed, right? You can fight, you can work, you can strive for power and honor here on earth. But Jesus' point is, it doesn't even last. Why do you go for everything that's going to eventually be rolled up and passed away? So Jesus says, you follow me and I will give you infinite rule and power in my name. Number two, he promises everything. Look at what Jesus says. You leave your house, your family. So, so think, we're talking about an agricultural people. You leave your house, your family, your land. That's everything right there. You'll receive a hundredfold. So what does that look like? Romans 8, 17 says that when we believe in Jesus, we become co-heirs with Christ. So that might make you go, well, well who's Jesus? Then well, he's the son of God. Well, what does that mean? What means he owns everything? And now he just says you're a co-heir with him. So what, what does he give you? Everything. What does he hold back? Nothing. 
That's the craziness of the gospel. Like you think about it, Jesus isn't promising global power and rule and riches here. He's not even promising like uh, universal power and joy. He's promising cosmic, like new creation, everything that I own, you also. Not just global, not just earth, not just this universe, everything I own, you will share in and I will satisfy you completely with my everlasting glory. And it never wears out. When my wife and I, we moved into our house, it was like one of those really old school dishwashers. So we're like, nope, getting a new dishwasher. First thing we did, talked to people, interviewed people, you know, figured out number one dishwasher. Didn't want to have to replace it later, so we bought the best one we could buy. Within, within months, replaced the control panel. Within months, the wheels started falling off of it. Like it is, it's, it's, it's like creeping on still, just limping. Um, things in this earth, Things in this earth break. They fade. They don't last. My dishwasher is a perfect picture of that. It just faded from the moment I got it. And yet Jesus is saying, you believe in me, you have everything and nothing fades. Nothing wears out. Everything lasts forever. I will satisfy you with unending joy, maximum pleasure at all times. And you go, well, how can I be sure? Empty tomb. Empty tomb. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. And then we come to verse 30, which makes us all pause, and it's a, it's a warning. It says, many who are first will be last and last first. So Jesus says, you, you want to be first here on earth now. You want everything now. You want to hold on to everything here, then you'll be last. And last doesn't mean, oh, but I still get the kingdom, right? I'll just be the last one to close it. I'll close the door. No, you won't enter. But if you're last here, if you give everything, if you count Jesus more glorious than everything in this world, and we follow him and we treasure him and we do what Jesus says, come follow me. He says, oh, you'll be first and you'll have everything. You will sit with me on my thrones. I will satisfy you with glory and honor and riches and you will forever be in my presence worshiping me in maximum pleasure, maximum joy as his glory is made known throughout all of creation. That's the warning. And it's a warning that no matter where we come at today, we need to wrestle. If you're a believer then I think that warning is just saying, have you examined your life lately? Are you being distracted? Are there any snares that are coming that are leading you away? That you're forgetting the joy and the pleasure that God promises us in Jesus. He's calling us to find satisfaction in him, not in our marriages, not in our houses, not in our families, not in our land, not in our, any of our riches, but in him. Because all of those things will fail, all of those things will pass, in me alone. So if you're a believer, he's just calling us to recenter ourselves back on the gospel. And one thing I find that we need to do every day is not only remember the cross, but remember the resurrection as well. Remembering that we already have everything in Jesus. Number two, if you're an unbeliever here, 
And this warning is just this last statement at the end of this passage where he says, will you follow me? Or will you be like the rich man and walk away? None of us are ignorant now. We've all heard the message. We've all heard God's word. You can have everything now and have as much pleasure as you can get, and it will all fade. It will all go away. None of it will last, and you will suffer for all of eternity. Or you could follow Jesus. He said, you give everything to him, and whatever that looks like here on earth, there might be suffering. There'll be joy too, but there might be suffering here on earth. He says, oh, but those who give everything to me will have everything for all of eternity, and you will never, ever, ever lack again. So Jesus is telling, if you've not yet believed in him, come, follow me. Jesus is greater than all the treasures of the earth. Follow me, trust in me, and when you doubt, empty tomb. Jesus has risen. And that's what we come back to over and over and over again. We come to the cross. He paid the price for our sins. How do I know? He rose from the grave. Easter, he has risen. And so um, with that, I'm going to pray. And uh, we're going to have some ushers. They're going to come forward. And they're going to dismiss you row by row. And you're going to come and you're going to partake of the elements. Now, Now hear this. There's two cups. They're stacked. Grab both cups. Just, just remember that. Grab both cups. It's got bread and juice in it. Um, and then we'll come back to our seats, and all at once we'll take those together. Uh, but let me pray. Father, Father, we thank you that we are not saved by our works. Because if we are saved by works, then we have absolutely no chance of earning it. But Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the message of the rich young ruler. Lord, I pray that there is no one here that walks away today. I pray that there is no one here who walks away. I pray that we know your grace, that we believe in your grace, that we know that there is life in your son Jesus because he is life. He is eternal life. He is the only life. He is the means, the path, the road that we have to living with you for all of eternity and maximum joy in your infinite glory. So Lord, I pray if there are those here today, believers, and we've been falling into a snare that, Lord, we would repent now and we would trust in you for that forgiveness and we would live everything for you. And Lord, I pray if there's any unbeliever here today that, Lord, they would confess their sins and they would trust in you today knowing that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no hope in anything else, that all the things of this world, our marriages, our houses, our cars, everything will fail. But you never fail. And you are the only one who brings peace to our heart and to our soul. And I pray that they will trust in you and repent and believe in you today. God, we thank you for the sending of your son. We thank you for the grace of Jesus and the fact that you rose him from the grave. Victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over Satan. So we too would have the promise that we will rise and live everlasting life with you. Maximum joy, infinite glory to you. God, we praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen.